This is Life in FM, the Good Shepherd Fargo Moorhead podcast. Hey everybody, welcome to the podcast. I'm Pastor Taylor, your host, and this week I had the chance to sit down with Pastor Mary, lead pastor of Good Shepherd, to have a Q&A sermon, lifting up questions that members of our church have raised over the past few weeks, and to give some insight both into scripture and the call that we've had in our lives as pastors and people of faith. So enjoy, know that we're grateful to be journeying alongside you wherever you're at in your faith. God's peace, here's our message for this week. This is Life in FM. Hey everybody, welcome to our online Q&A. Pastor Mary and Pastor Taylor, we're so excited to be able to jump into these questions raised by folks like you within the Good Shepherd community. Uh, We're gonna jump into our first one today, which was asked to me, how do you connect with God? And for me, I think it goes back probably to my elementary years, being around the campfire and looking up at those young adults, those camp counselors uh, playing guitar and singing songs, some of them that were deeply meaningful, others that were very goofy. Um, But it was such a way for me to connect with God and feel comfortable being myself. And throughout the years, uh, I've continued to find myself around that campfire ring, and usually with the guitar in hand as well. Now the interesting thing for me is uh, music was that way for, gosh, 15 years, uh, where I, I connected with God as a worship leader and as a songwriter. And then I went to seminary. And I'm so grateful now to be able to continue to have music be a part of that. And I invite you this summer, too, to come and join us for worship around the campfire ring. Uh, But those are some of the kind of the outside the box ways that I connect with God. I think that many of you, though, assume that because I'm a pastor, that I I connect with God in very professional ways. And I'm here to say uh, yes and no. (laughs) Yes, I absolutely do. Uh, I connect with God in so many ways. But I also want to encourage you to consider the fact that it's not because I'm a pastor that I do that. That you're able to connect with God exactly where you're at. And so if it's with a guitar in hand or around the campfire ring or somewhere else, find that place where you can be authentic, where you can be yourself, and where you can experience God fully. There's nothing better. Yeah. Uh, The next question was directed to both of us. Why did you want to become a pastor? Mm. And how does it affect your home life? I feel like my answer has been changing over the years, but um, I didn't originally want to become a pastor. I I don't blame you. Yeah, weird, (laughs) weird way to make a living. Um, But in college, I was majoring in economics and Russian, and that is not the logical career path to follow to become a pastor. And it was also during that time that I started dating Aaron, and he talked about becoming a pastor. And it sounded so interesting to me. It sounded like such a creative and um, just uh, entrepreneurial way to make a living. And so I just kept telling him like, okay, you go to seminary, I'll figure out something else to do after college, but I wanna learn everything that you're gonna learn in seminary because it sounds so great. Um, And finally, my older sister said, Mary, why don't you just go to seminary too? Like, you are so passionate about learning about God and being able to articulate that, and why don't you try it? And it was in that conversation where I finally thought, huh, maybe I will pursue it. And now looking back over the last 15 years, I also just see earlier things from my life that led me to become a pastor. 
I feel like I have a high tolerance for chaos, which is describes church life. Very much so. I love debate. I love creativity. I love connecting with people. And all of these things come together to be a pastor. And growing up in my house, my dad was an entrepreneur and he um, developed certain processes and businesses and some failed and some succeeded. And in his spare time, volunteering was so important to him. He volunteered at church, in the community, in civic life. And he dragged me and the rest of our family along in his volunteer endeavors as well. And then my mom, um, I saw her in leadership as a school principal and superintendent. And I saw her consistency, her calmness in leading large organizations. And all of those things have kind of come together in my life now as a pastor. And it still is an interesting way to make a living. And <laughs> how does it impact home life? Um, that we, it is kind of an interesting schedule. We work five, six, and sometimes seven days a week. And we work days and evenings and weekends. But yet, at the same time, it's, it's creative, it's energizing. And I think um, many of us hold to this normal view of um, working a job that's nine to five, Monday through Friday, but what percentage of the population actually works that kind of job? I think, you know, I work holidays, but so do healthcare workers and bartenders. And I mean, what is normal really? So in our family, we just really try to um, carve out some time to take adventure, to spend time together as a family. And that's how we do life. That's cool. You know, growing up for me, I've shared this before, uh, but my folks are what I like to call checklist Lutherans. So they had me baptized, check, confirmed, check, and then I was done, right? That was it. And it was that Bible camp experience for me, uh, being invited with friends uh, to go and play games and sing fun songs and eat way too much pizza, you know, tacos and all that good camp food. Um, it was through that experience that I had my first kind of, I think, real encounter with God. And then because of that, when I was in college, I went back and I worked for three summers uh, as a Bible camp counselor. And so kind of the, the natural transition, I think, is that if you want to work with kids and you've worked at a Bible camp, like, hey, maybe I'll become a youth director. And so as I was wrapping up college, uh, youth development was my, was my major. Uh, I kind of made the pivot toward church work. And I grew up Lutheran. I did not think that I would be a Lutheran pastor uh, by any means, uh, but it was one of those things where I kind of assumed my ceiling probably was being a youth director, and so I, I jumped into that. And in the midst of that, uh, I had a mentor, Pastor Stephanie, that said, hey, I think that you should consider seminary. And I kind of laughed it off, and around this time I was starting to date my now wife, Julie, and I remembered one of my first conversations with her before we were dating, where she's like, yeah, I don't really want to marry a pastor. And so as we were starting to date and things were getting kind of serious, uh, she said to me, I think you should go to seminary. And I turned to her and I said, are you breaking up with me? Seriously. Uh, you know, it, it, was, it was so profound for me because she had been pretty clear that she didn't want to marry a pastor. And yet here she was encouraging me to take these steps uh, towards seminary. And, you know, I'm, I'm very grateful for that because she has been to seminary. She's been in ministry longer than I have been. 
and she knows the highs and lows of what a call like this can look like. Um, Pastor Mary, you mentioned what is normal, right? Uh, so many of our vocations uh, have weird hours and certain expectations from uh, folks, whether they're parishioners or customers or whatever title you want to give them. Um, but the truth is this, um, I'm very grateful that my family is able to be in one place. Uh, we could be working at different congregations. Many uh, ministry couples do that or, you know, whatever whatever role you might be living into, you, you might have to be in a couple different places. And if your family dynamics look different, that's a reality for kids. I'm very grateful that we're able to be in one place a Good Shepherd. Uh, but I think part of her uncertainty of, of going and marrying a pastor was that contextually, it can be very different at the church down the road. Uh, and so that's probably a thing that I, I commend Good Shepherd for having a, a healthy environment in this place where families can thrive and kids are encouraged. And it's not just for the staff, it's for all of us. Uh, we're all in this together growing in faith. And I'd encourage you, whether or not you're considering being in ministry uh, or just finding that way to boldly serve, do it and know that we're going to encourage you along the way. All right. Um, we got a series of questions about the Bible. So who wrote the Bible? Who wrote it? Yeah. How do we know it's true? And is it inerrant, like free of errors? Mm. Um, and I love these questions. And I think that a reason that people ask these questions, though, is because they want the Bible to be simplified and easily put into a box. But it can't be. Like, the word Bible means books. Like, it doesn't just mean one book. So it is a library of books that were compiled and written by many different people over hundreds of years. It is really complex, and they were written in different places, and sometimes we don't know who wrote the books, and sometimes we do. For many years, people thought that Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, because it centers around that story of Moses leading the Hebrew people out of slavery in Egypt and shaping them into a people and giving them the law, giving them the Ten Commandments that he received from God. And these were really formative parts in Israel's history. And so then it was ascribed that Moses wrote those books. But nowhere in those books does it say Moses wrote them. But it makes us feel better if we know who wrote those specific books. And then when we get to the New Testament, we have the Gospels by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But nowhere in those Gospel books does it say, I, Matthew, am going to tell you a story about Jesus. It doesn't tell us this. But over the years of studying these books, they had some attributes of these various people, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John. And it gave us a name to call these different accounts of Jesus's life. So as we look at how the Bible is put together and if we should trust it, I don't think we should get hung up on, do we know for sure who the author is or when or where it was written or what to do about some of the errors that we do find in the text. I think the questions that consumed the people who wrote the Bible, those people who are inspired by God in different places and times, their concern is the power of God and what God is trying to do in this world, how God is connected to us, what God's love can do, what God's forgiveness can do, and what God's hopes are in the midst of sin and evil and all sorts of really hard things. And so something that's actually 
helped strengthen my faith is that I actually can look at the complexity of the Bible as I continue to study it and say, wow, even though it was written by so many different people and in so many different places, they are all telling the story of the same God. And when we read it today, since we believe as Christians that it is God breathed, it is spirit inspired, that God still speaks to us and it's an unfolding story. So I love studying how the Bible was put together, but I don't want to get stuck on those nuts and bolts because it's really more about God's relationship with us and God's hopes for the world. Definitely. And there's so many great stories for us to continue to learn from today. Uh, that was one of the questions that I had was, what's a favorite Bible story or piece of scripture that you have? And for me, it would be Paul's letter to the Romans. And in chapter 8, uh, there is a, a part of it where it, it basically hits on the fact that there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And I remember being in my first year of youth ministry, uh, and my grandma passed away during that time. And so it was a very uh, traumatic time. It was very hard because uh, I had a, such a connection to my grandma. Uh, and I had lots of worries about what was to come for her, uh, partly because of uh, what others might say, but also my own uncertainty with what the scriptures say uh, about sin and life and, and who believes in God and who's in and who's out. I mean, there's, there's so much of that that it continues to play out today. And for me, uh, there was that, that day where I was in grief that our communications person sent out an email uh, and on the bottom of it, it had that piece from Paul's letter to the Romans. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And that was such a profound moment for me because every bit of fear and worry that I had for my grandma uh, was out the door. Because throughout that book, there are a ton of things that are listed and they're all important, but it's not just limited to what's in the scripture. Uh, you can insert whatever it is that you might have that's weighing heavy on your life. And even that is not going to be able to separate you from God's love. And it was that particular day where I just felt like I had this uh, weight lifted from my shoulders. And it became my favorite piece of scripture. Because in those low points in life, uh, I was able to cling to hope. And when I've walked alongside families that are grieving, that's often one of the scriptures that I'll pull out because I believe it's going to bring them hope. Uh, but I've also found hope in it, not just in those down times, but in every day, uh, knowing that no matter what I'm going to experience today or tomorrow or somewhere deep into the future, God continues to journey with me. God loves me and God loves you. And uh, I hope that you're able to find a little bit of hope in Paul's letter to the Romans today as well. And we'd love to hear what are your favorite Bible stories. Type I them in. Type them in. I, I find that when you share what your favorite story is, you may inspire someone else as well. Another question that we got is one I get from time to time, and that is, why is the church always asking for money? <laughs> oh, okay, I could preach a whole sermon about this. She has. And I have, but <laughs> I will just give two points, um, two answers, a practical answer and a spiritual answer. The practical answer is that churches are 100% run by the money and the gifts and the time that is shared with the church from the people who are a part of it. So it's all of us together committing to saying we believe that our faith in God is strengthened in this place and we will support it. Um, it's just practical that we ask everyone who considers themselves part of this church family 
to share in some way. And we know that people have different capacities and some people can give more and some people can give less, but we think it's important to keep on inviting everybody to give in some way because we have a big mission. And I'm always so humbled by how we are able to carry on this ministry by just the gifts that people give. We have this beautiful facility that we can care for and do ministry in as kind of our base of operations. We also have seven full-time staff members and a number of part-time staff members. We also have partner ministries in the community and the beyond that we are committed to helping because they do work, they're specialized in work that we couldn't do ourselves. And so that's why we ask for money. But then the spiritual reason for why we ask for money is that it's a faith practice. When you give a portion of the money that you make to God, you are saying, God, I trust that you're gonna do something through it. I trust that this is going to strengthen someone else's faith. We are saying together that when we pool our money together, we're saying, God, I want you to shape my priorities, shape what's important to me. That not only is this a place where I'm challenged and encouraged to grow in faith, but other people can be challenged and encouraged to grow in their faith. And I'm being challenged to care about people beyond myself and beyond my immediate family. And it can really help us see our connection to people everywhere and realize that God loves all of those people. So there's practical reasons, there's spiritual reasons, but I wanna thank you for what you do give and know that next time you come to church, whether online or in person, we're gonna invite you to give again <laughs> because our goal is to have everyone give something. Well, we had another question and it'll be our last one for today, um, but it's for both of us. Have either of you ever had doubts that God exists or have you always had a strong faith throughout your life? Uh, and my answer to that is yes. Take it for what it's worth. But I will dive a little bit deeper into that. Now, I mentioned earlier that I really didn't grow up in uh, an active faith home. And for me, then, it was through those really important experiences at camp and through friends that invited me to their churches, et cetera, et cetera, where I was able to grow in faith. Um, but I was a bit of a spiritual mutt of sorts, and I ended up at Bible college. Uh, and it was throughout that time that I realized I had a lot more questions than many of the people that I was in class with. Like they were either more mature in their faith than me at the time, or they just weren't comfortable asking questions, or they weren't given permission to do so. And so in, in the midst of uh, what I think are really important conversations about faith and life and how we treat each other, um, I found myself kind of at odds sometimes with my classmates, sometimes with my professors, because I would agitate them and I would ask questions. And, oh, so yeah, that's not a new habit. Not a new habit okay. at all. Okay. Yeah. Uh, but in the midst of that, I also had a lot of doubts. Uh, and some of them were uh, from within, uh, but also some of them were projected on me uh, by my classmates and by some of my professors. And I just remember this very profound moment where I was sitting down with my advisor Again, I was, I was majoring in youth development, which was kind of like a, a secular youth ministry degree. I was going to go in and make a difference in the lives of students outside of the church, uh, be able to live my faith out that way. Um, I sat down with my professor and I just said, like, I'm really struggling. Uh, I have these doubts that I'm good enough, that I should even be here at this school. I have doubts that I'm a believer because of things that either my classmates or my professors have said, like, 
am I an atheist? Am I even a Christian? And he kind of chuckled and he said, well, Taylor, you're not an atheist. You're a Lutheran. <laughs> and I laughed, but I laughed at the time. Uh, I probably shed a few tears of laughter uh, and also thankfulness uh, because this Assemblies of God professor um, was comfortable enough in his own theology to create space for me at the table and to speak truth and hope into my life at that moment. Uh, where he could have said, well, yeah, Taylor, this is what the 16 fundamental truths of the Assemblies of God are. He didn't. Instead, he gave me value and hope as God's beloved by, by naming something that I probably honestly was running from because I had such a narrow view of what being a Lutheran looked like based on my upbringing. Uh, but he created space for me theologically um, to, to really run with that. And that was such a profound thing that has then kind of propelled me to do that for others as I'm walking alongside uh, people of all ages here, Good Shepherd, folks outside in the community that might recognize me as being a pastor here, but I'm not their pastor, uh, to create space and, and say when all are welcome, like we mean that, and that means you get to bring your hopes and your joys as well as your sorrows and some of your doubts too. So uh, I have been there, and sometimes, if I can be honest, I'm still there. Yeah. Um, I think doubt is a healthy part of a faith life. Mm. And I've struggled with it um, in various times in my life. And I think the deepest time of doubt and struggle happened after our daughter died and she didn't get to see her second birthday. And I felt like that was a time filled with such doubt, doubt in the existence of God, mixed with anger at God, mixed with just feeling so powerless. and. It was really scary to feel all of that because I was a new pastor at the time. Mm. And, you know, your pastor should have a little bit more security in their faith. I mean, <laughs> you'd hope. And all I could think to do is just keep preaching what I used to believe and hope that I would believe those things again. And eventually, um, my faith did come back. And in some ways, some things stayed the same, but other things changed or were deepened um, because I wrestled with them. And I remember going to a conference about a year after our daughter died, and there was an old preaching professor there, and he was a retired pastor as well, and he since died. But he said, why do Christians keep turning faith into an individual sport? It was never meant to be an individual sport. It is a team sport. Why are you trying to carry the weight of your faith all by yourself? And it really stuck with me. And he shared a story with me from Mark chapter 2 that I'd read before about how four friends bring their paralyzed friend to Jesus for healing. And Jesus sees the faith of this man's friends and he heals the paralyzed man. Like we don't know if the man who is paralyzed even had faith in Jesus. Hmm. And yet Jesus saw the faith of his friends and healed him. And it made me think about how we can carry one another when we each might be having struggles and doubts. Um, if you're not believing, I can pray for you. I can care for you and vice versa. We can carry each other to Jesus. And Jesus isn't going to just look at me or you individually, but looks at us together. Another thing that I've always found interesting is that some Christians look at it um, as a badge of honor to never have any doubts and to think that's what makes a strong faith. But for Jewish people, 
arguing with God or arguing with what is in Scripture is considered a mark of strong faith because you're saying, okay, God, if you are all good and all powerful, if you exist, then show up, then show me your power. You know, it's if God really is here, then we shouldn't have to try to protect God from our doubts and our feelings that we have that might just be a little too tough for God's delicate balance. No, God can take it. And what I really love is when I've had those times of saying, God, are you really here? God's shown up. And maybe it doesn't happen overnight, but I've never stopped being willing to challenge or critique or argue with God because I know that I believe in a strong God, a strong, powerful God that, that does show up. And so if you have doubts, bring them. Talk to one of us, talk to other people. Um, but I think that sharing the doubt itself is the first step in strengthening your faith. Yeah, wherever you're at in your faith, no matter if you're a member here at Good Shepherd or if this is your first time checking us out online, know that we're grateful that you're here and that we don't want this to be an individual thing for you, but to be a part of our team. So if there are ways that we can be the church for you, even from afar in the days ahead, bring your questions, bring your doubts, and come and share in the joy with us. Thank you so much for checking this out, and we hope to see you soon. Make sure you subscribe to this podcast, check back weekly for new content, and if you'd like to support this important ministry of Good Shepherd, you can go to our website, knowthegoodshepherd.org slash giving, for a one-time or recurring gift, or you can text a dollar amount to the number 84321. Thanks for being a part of the community here at Good Shepherd. This is Life in FM.